Welcome, friends, to another edition of Economic Update, a weekly program devoted to the economic dimensions of our lives and those of our children. I'm your host, Richard Wolf. Today's program is going to be talking about collective bargaining for public employees, about a strange old billionaire, Bernie Marcus, who founded Home Depot and has something to tell us we will be able to smile about. A little less funny is the failure of the corporation Southwest Airlines over the Christmas New Year holiday, and we'll have quite a bit to say about that. And then a little bit about that remarkable George Santos candidate from the Republican Party. And in the second half of the show, we will have our guest, Chris Hedges. I think we have a really good show for you today. So let's jump right in. The National Labor Relations Act gave workers in the United States back in the 20th century the right to strike. It was understood to be foundational to democracy, putting aside how long it had taken this so-called democracy to give workers that right. But if you read the National Labor Relations Act, you will quickly see that one very important group of workers was not covered by it. In fact, several groups of workers were not covered. Domestic workers, people who work in situations like that, that had a lot to do with non-white workers in this country, female workers in this country. But the group I want you to think about now are public employees. That's right. Millions and millions of people who work for cities, towns, government, states, the federal government weren't covered under the National Labor Relations Act. That was left up to each state. So it took even longer, decades in many cases, for public employees to struggle long and hard over lots of opposition to finally get that right in a democratic society. Some states still don't have it. North and South Carolina have banned public employees from being in unions, and that may have something to do with the fact that union membership is 2% of the labor force in those states. Virginia allowed a few years ago public employees, uh, but they left it up to each individual city or town or region, and so that has to be fought for too. Why am I mentioning all of this? It's a commentary on how slowly and difficult it is to get democracy for working people. And that's always been true in capitalism. And I'm hammering at that. Let me give you the worst example in a way that I can think of from the top of my head. We have a minimum wage, a federal minimum wage in the United States, $7.25 an hour. Yeah. Not only is that horrible to imagine trying to live on that, but it hasn't been raised since 2009. That well, that 14 years. Over that time, prices have risen 20, 25% at least, but not the minimum wage. So the minimum wage could buy less and less and less, as well as being horribly low. Why is that? Do the mass of the working people of America not want to get paid better than 725? Of course not. The overwhelming majority of Americans want a higher minimum wage. Who blocks it? The Republican Party, number one, the business community, number two. And why do I tell you that? Because it has always been the case. 
The capitalist, the employer class has voted against and worked against every step of improvement for the mass of the working people. When they couldn't stop it, they delayed it. When they couldn't delay it, they would reverse it. Basically, this minimum wage story is a story of reversal. You had to give them the minimum wage, and it's only back to the 1930s when it first began. But by not raising it with inflation, you are in a way reversing it. You're making it worth less and less than $7.25 an hour. And why am I telling you all of this? Because in the year just over, 2022, a remarkable number of people who defend capitalism, that's what they do, often for a living, came up with this one. And it's not new. We are all supposed to like capitalism, they tell us, because over the last two or three centuries, people's standard of living has risen. Well, that's true. It has. But that's not to the credit of capitalism. That's outrageous. It's been the capitalists who blocked it, who slowed it, who reversed it at every step, like with the minimum wage. It takes a certain amount of arrogance to block the improvement of the condition of working people. And then when you lose your effort to stop it, to slow it, and to reverse it, you then want to claim credit as if you had done it out of the goodness of your system. You didn't, and nobody should be fooled. The founder, or one of the founders of Home Depot, a man named Bernie Marcus, 93-year-old billionaire. According to Forbes, he's worth five and a quarter billion dollars, at least in a recent year. He made a lot of headlines recently, not for supporting Donald Trump and the Florida Governor DeSantis, to whom, by the way, among other Republicans, he has given $64 million in recent years. No, he got a lot of notoriety because he said American workers hear me out now, are fat, lazy, and stupid. Those are quotations. And when he was asked, why does he feel that way? What's causing this? He said, it's socialism that has caused all of this. Didn't quite explain how that works, and the mystery will stay with us. Uh, And he also blamed creeping wokeism. They just don't work hard the way they once did. And Bernie doesn't like Harvard, and he doesn't like people with masters of business uh, administration degrees. He thinks uh, Joe Biden is the worst president in American history. Wow. You know what comes across listening to this uh, billionaire elderly gentleman? He does understand that capitalism is in trouble. And so he wants to do what strikes him as the important thing to do about capitalism and trouble. Blame the workers. Blame the working class. That's what he is doing. So now let's go back. He gives $64 million to Republicans to fight what he opposes. Fight socialism. Fight wokeism. Fight the horrible President Biden. All of that. And I want that to be understood by everyone, because that's where the Republicans and a good number of Democrats, too, that's where they get these ideas. You might wonder, why do they say those things? 
They say them because their donors believe that, because their donors give them money, because they repeat what the donors believe. And the big business donors in this country are more like Bernie Marcus of Home Depot than you might imagine. That's the type. And that's where these ideas that you may find bizarre come from. Maybe out of the mouths of the Republicans, but the idea, the source, the cause, big business. That's the way it's been. That's the way it is now. I turn next to the horrific stories. You all saw them on television or heard about them. Southwest Airlines across the Christmas holiday, New Year's season, they canceled vast numbers of their flights, stranding huge numbers of, of people in airports for unmentionable numbers of hours or days, messing up people's Christmas travel, their Christmas time with relatives and friends. The horror was everywhere. I want to talk about that so that we are clear about what the problem is here. And like with Bernie Marcus at Home Depot, the problem is with big business, not with the weather, the lame effort of Southwest Airlines to blame the weather, which, by the way, was the same weather that didn't do the same thing to Delta, United, American, and all the rest of them. What an effort. Blame the weather. Extraordinary. Well, it turns out that, and I want to get these numbers right, so you're 38 states out of the 50 st attorney generals had written months earlier to Southwest saying, you are in bad shape. You are not in a good place to service the people of America who need to fly. Change what you're doing. A few weeks before, 34 attorney generals sent a follow-up letter. The union complained about insufficient union workers to manage what could happen. They knew. They knew. Did they spend the money to hire the extra workers they might need? Did they spend the money to have the backup in the event that weather became a problem? This is not the first time we've had bad weather in the United States. I'm trying to be polite here. No, they didn't. But they did have time to do something else. They increased their dividends to their shareholders. They made sure to pay their CEO his $9 million a year salary right on time. And you know, during the pandemic, they got, just so you know, $3.2 billion of American taxpayer money to help them through. And their payback, give more money to their executives, give more money to their shareholders, and strand tens of thousands of people across. You leave these important functions in the hands of big business, that's what you get. But I'm not done. I want to turn next to the Secretary of Transportation in the Biden government, Pete Buttigieg. What did he do when the state attorney generals were talking to the airline about all this? Nothing. What did he do when they sent a second letter follow-up? Nothing. 
What did he do even as this was unfolding in the week before Christmas? Nothing. When it blew up, oh yeah, then we heard how he's concerned. Concerned? How he is going to make sure that the airline reimburses people. What? That's it? This is like sending a message to every other transportation or any other company that this government is not going to punish you. Here's what he should be doing. He should be going around and saying, if a plan isn't forthcoming in three weeks from Southwest that, that guarantees this will never happen again, we're taking over the airline. We're going to reorganize it. It's going to be run by the workers on the one hand and the customers, the flying American public. And we're going to have a council and they're going to monitor the airline and they're going to make sure and they're not going to pay dividends and they're not going to pay fancy salaries unless and until they do what they're supposed to do. Then we would have a government that regulates. Pete Buttigieg should be ashamed of himself and the Biden and his administration. Failure to do your job. That's what all this is about. And what can I say finally about George Santos, the phantom Republican in New York's third congressional district who has lied apparently about literally everything in his life in order to win that election. For me, it's just a sign of what advertising has done to our culture. Advertisers don't want to tell you the truth about whatever it is they're selling. They just want you to buy it. They tell you whatever is good and they hide whatever is bad. And that's what Mr. Santos did. And when he didn't have enough good to tell you about, he hid the bad and he made it up. It's just the next step in what advertising has done. Advertising is the creature of capitalism, and that's why we're critics. For those of you who may not know, Economic Update is produced by Democracy at Work, celebrating 10 years of critical system analysis and visions of a more equitable and democratic world. For example, my book, Understanding Marxism, presents an accessible overview of Marxism, as well as an argument for the power and usefulness of Marxist criticism of the capitalist economic system. It's available in multiple formats, and you can get your copy from our website, democracyatwork.info slash books. There you can also learn about the work we produce, sign up for our mailing list, follow us on social media, and support all that we do. And for those of you who are already part of the growing community of supporters, thank you for helping us make all of this possible. Please stay with us. We'll be right back with Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist and author Chris Hedges. Welcome back, friends, to the second half of today's economic update. It is with great pleasure that I bring to our microphones and our cameras a frequent guest on this program, Chris Hedges. He needs no introduction. I'm sure many of you have seen or heard him speak on countless occasions, but let me go briefly through it. He's the author of 14 books, including several New York Times bestsellers. He's also a Pulitzer Prize winning journalist who was a foreign correspondent for 15 years for the New York Times, where he served as Middle East bureau chief and Balkan bureau chief as well. He hosts the Chris Hedges Report and is a columnist at Sheer Post. Okay, let me jump right in, Chris. Dispense with thanking you for your time, which we all appreciate. You're a seasoned journalist, to say the least. 
How do you assess the urgent issues that are addressed these days by the likes of the New York Times and the Washington Post? And by urgent issues, I really mean three things. The Ukraine war, the U.S.-China conflict, and the risks these days spoken of of a nuclear war. Well, the New York Times does what is it has traditionally done, along with the Washington Post uh, and all of the other mainstream media outlets, and that is serve as a cheerleader for the war industry. Uh, that's nothing new. Go back to Iraq, uh, the uh, invasion of Iraq. That is the role that they have uh, always played and continue to play. The coverage out of Ukraine is quite disturbing. I covered many conflicts. It's very clear that it's tightly controlled by the Ukrainians so that reporters and camera people are taken out to visit a town that's been recaptured or driven up for a couple hours to the front line and then driven back. It's the old system of minders, the traditional dog and pony shows that really shapes the message uh, or allows the Ukrainians to completely dominate uh, the message in terms of the war. I mean, we have pretty credible reports that there's been reprisals against uh, by the Ukrainians against people who are suspected, accused of being Russian collaborators. I've uh, spent enough time in any war zone to tell you that once the chaos envelops a landscape at war, both sides lie like they breathe, both sides commit atrocities. Sometimes those atrocities are dominated by one side or the other. That was certainly true in the war in Bosnia, but we're not really getting any serious coverage. And when there is an attempt at more nuanced coverage, such as CBS did when they filed an investigative piece that estimated that only 30% of the weapons being shipped into Ukraine. Remember, the United States has now provided $100 billion in aid to this proxy war. That's almost double uh, the size of the budget of the State Department. It's, of course, utter insanity. Uh, but uh, that there's no accountability for these weapons once they cross the border into Ukraine. And uh, they are, uh, I think, according to the CBS report, which they hastily had to take down, or they uh, are ending up in the hands of warlords, black marketeers, uh, the Azov battalion, who knows? Uh, it's, it's not controlled. There's no audit. Even the Pentagon admits there's, there's no oversight. In terms of Taiwan, uh, you know, the Nancy Pelosi's visit to Taiwan, this, this is a way, of course, to create tensions with China. And that's what keeps the budget, especially for the uh, huge uh, budget handed to the Navy. Um, and it's all about creating enemies. I mean, I go back to 89, Gorbachev, uh, I was in Eastern Europe, Gorbachev uh, wanted to build a security and economic alliance with the United States and, and Europe. But if there was no enemy, there was, if Russia was an enemy, they were going to make it Russia an enemy because uh, there would be no excuse to expand NATO. Indeed, NATO, which was designed to prevent Soviet expansion into Eastern and Central Europe, should have been disbanded after uh, the collapse of the Soviet Union and all of the revolutions, which I covered in Eastern Europe. So it's the war industry, unfortunately, drives policy. The two parties are completely captive to it. We just passed this gigantic military bill, $850 billion, $45 billion more than the Biden administration requested. And that, if you read traditional accounts of how empires self-destruct, hollow themselves out from the inside, it is unchecked, unregulated, rampant 
militarism. That's not what destroyed the Roman Empire. I mean, by the long list, the Ottomans and everyone else. So we are following that trajectory. And, and on the issue of war and on the issue of militarism, and of course, we militarized internally our own society as we've destroyed it economically, there's no daylight between the Democrats and the Republicans with this caveat. There's more opposition to that budget among the Republicans now than there is to the Democrats. AOC, to her credit, voted down this big $1.7 trillion spending bill that included that military budget that I mentioned. She voted against it and uh, Talib uh, voted uh, present, but you had far more opposition among the Republicans. Some of them are nutcases like Marjorie Taylor Greene, etc. But yeah, the Democratic Party is fervently behind war and controlled by the war industry. And that is utterly disastrous because, of course, it's flirting with two nuclear powers. I mean, I cover wars. I can tell you, you don't control them once they start. They control you. And one mistake, when I go back and read Barbara Tuckman, I mean, you can stumble into global suicidal conflicts very, very easily. I'm here to, I never thought I'd be in this position, hold up the words of Henry Kissinger, who has warned that there has to be negotiations quickly, that the whole idea of of allowing Ukraine to recapture all of Ukrainian territory, including the eastern part of the Donbass, where you have ethnic Russians, uh, it, it, even the New York Times has said this is a, a, not a realistic reality or a realistic uh, goal. Yeah, we're in a, we're, and, there, and, and I, just to end, I mean, there's no, like the 20-year debacle in the Middle East, these people have no uh, thought as to where this is going to lead. There's, as far as I can tell, no goal other than degrading Russian military forces and, and hopefully driving Putin out of office. Uh, of course, that didn't work too well in Syria, and uh, Russia's a much bigger country. In fact, the economic sanctions have, have hurt Europe far more than they've hurt Russia. So, yeah, it's just another debacle by the profiteers, the war profiteers, who unfortunately are driving policy, and it's a, it's a very dangerous policy to follow. All right, let me switch the focus a little bit. Donald Trump, it appears, is in a process of some sort of decline as a political force in the country. And there is a governor in Florida who seems to be aiming to replace him. How does all of this strike you? Well, the DeSantis is more dangerous because unlike Trump, he's competent, you know, like Pompeo or Tom Cotton or these others. Trump, with or without Trump, it doesn't, we, we will still, we still live mired in this political divide, political morass with these political distortions because of what the two parties have done to the economy and to the livelihood of working class men and women. I mean, that's what's driving this, largely the white working class that feels dethroned, displaced, which they have been, the in, incredible accumulation of wealth by this oligarchic elite, which is unlike anything we've seen. Um, you know, going back, we'd have to go back to, I don't know, Rome or, you know, pharaonic Egypt or something to see this kind of wealth. I mean, the Rockefellers had a few billion. Our billionaire class has 180 plus billion. It's, uh, and, and that's social inequality. You don't have to take even political science 101 to understand that that social inequality creates these kinds of messianics, right-wing populist, neo-fascist, that, that's, that's what is vomited up from a society that no longer functions. It's what I 
witnessed when I covered the war in Yugoslavia and go back and look at Weimar Germany, it's the same. So Trump, with or without Trump, uh, the, the problem isn't going to go away until we address the social inequality, the st political stagnation, and the fact that corporate power has seized every institution, including, of course, the media, and deformed them to serve their predatory interests on everybody else. So, and we've got inflation, the Biden administration has been unable to fulfill even its most tepid campaign promises, build back better, the uh, $15 minimum wage, uh, the uh, you know, the ability of, uh, of uh, care to be provided to the working class, et cetera, et cetera. So, in fact, in some ways it's worse than Trump because the supplemental packages have all evaporated, including, of course, they're lifting the moratorium on uh, foreclosures and bank repossession. So you know, it's, a, it's a very fraught and difficult time. 2024, with or without Trump, is still going to be very ugly. Do you think it will include the white supremacy dimension of all of this? Yeah, that, that's key, because what happened, this is what happened in Yugoslavia, you, the, the economic collapse of Yugoslavia, uh, you, you strip people of their sense of place and dignity and work within the society, then they reach out often for a fictional identity. In the case of Yugoslavia, that was uh, Serbian ethnic nationalism or Croatian. I mean, they resurrected the Ustasha and all the old symbols and everything else. In this case, it's, it, it is the idealized golden age of white supremacy, neo-confederacy, that is, has, what attra has attracted the white working class and created this vast divide where, uh, how many people voted for Trump? Was it 74 million or something? I mean, I mean, it's a lot of people. And, and, and like Yugoslavia, once people fall into that fantasy world, which it really is, there's no communication because uh, with, with the, that, that, the, with the other side, they're both grounded now in, in separate realities or even, in, I would argue, in, in non-reality-based belief systems. The Democrats are guilty of this with Russiagate as if you know, Russia was responsible for electing Trump. I, you'd have to pluck your eyes out or something to believe that. So that it's, it's, it's a very precarious moment. It's very fragile. It's very dangerous. And we can't ignore the fact that the country is awash in weapons. In not just weapons, but automatic weapons. I grew up in Maine. My relatives are all hunters. You don't carry AR-15s into the woods. They're useless for shooting down a deer. The caliber of the bullet is too small. So I, unless you, I guess you want to pepper the deer with, you know, 10 or 15 bullets or something. So these are weapons, they're assault weapons. And that, uh, the school shootings are what they're averaging more than one a day, a school or, you know, mass shootings are averaging more than, well, this is a society that's deeply, deeply disturbed. And, and unfortunately, the Biden administration, other than funding, you know, pumping these massive resources into Ukraine or the military, is not responding. There's, there's this political stagnation is is extremely dangerous, coupled with the fact that because we have an uncontrollable militarism romping around the globe, uh, you know, talking about defending Taiwan and bringing down Putin, it's it's a really really dangerous time. Yeah, you kind of wonder how long the fantasy can keep generating its own raw material before, at some point it begins to dawn on people that, that this is all one kind of large dead end. Uh, we're running out of time. Do you see anything on the horizon that might 
break us out of this? Yeah, labor, the one, the only weapon we have left by which we can begin to push back against these forces is organized labor and strikes. And we do see movement. Unfortunately, we just watched the Biden administration revoke the collective bargaining power of the railroad union, one of the few uh, unions that retain that right. So we, we know where the Democrats are from, but I would say strike, strike, strike. That history has shown that is an effective weapon and the only one we have left. Could not agree more. Chris Hedges, thank you very, very much for your time, for your insights. And I know that my audience appreciates it as much as I do. And to all of you, I look forward to speaking with you again next week.